Welcome to another episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. In this episode, we're gonna talk about top trees for bushcraft, the best time for carving, cleaning your pots in random places, how not to get wet under a tarp again, and light saw recommendations, and knife and ax maintenance at home. Welcome, welcome to episode 35 of Ask Paul Kirtley. I'm back in the northeast of England at the moment. And you might remember back about six months ago, actually longer, longer ago, back in December, January. I can't remember the exact episode number I should remember, but I recorded an episode in the snow um, back in an area of the northeast that I used to go as a young boy and get to know the woods and start to be on my journey in terms of learning about nature i'm back in that spot today out for a hike today in the northeast um it's getting on towards the end of the afternoon it's been a nice sunny day but it's coming in quite cloudy now so i'm hoping i can get this recorded um, before we get any rain i get the feeling it's feeling very humid today it's it's overcast now i'm feeling like we're about to get some rain but it's really nice to be in here um, it's very overgrown at the moment it's um and you know getting towards the end of the summer some things are starting to wilt the fruits are starting to to uh, get quite plump things are starting to ripen the nuts are starting to 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 be uh to be fully formed so yeah it's feeling a little, starting to feel a little bit back endish like we're moving towards autumn but it's still green and lush and very full of life and really nice to be out and i don't know whether the microphone's picking it up but there's loads of hoverflies up in this sycamore tree above me just flying around and buzzing each other and so if you can hear a buzz in the background that's what it is it's these hoverflies up here okay right i'm on my really small pocket camera today and there may be some jumps and bumps because um, it only records for about 15 minutes before stopping so i may have to stop and start and restart so if it seems a bit jumpy and cutty today that's why um, but i'll do my best to to try and keep that smooth and uh, not cut off the end of any answers importantly um, if the camera stops so i'll keep an eye on the camera making sure it's still recording all right top trees for bushcraft um, this is a question from Tony Hunter and he said, I've seen all the Ask Paul Kirtley videos so far and been thinking of a question I would like to ask. I've been interested in bushcraft for just over a year and was wondering what is uh, your list of top trees for learning the ID of um, for uses in bushcraft, i.e. firewood, fire lighting, bark for tinder bundles, campcraft, pot hangers, raised beds, etc. Thanks and great videos. Keep them coming. Tony. Well, Tony, um, there's many many useful trees um you asked about trees particularly there's many many useful trees and plants all around us um, some are quite specific to particular environments some are quite specific to certain uh, geographic regions some are much more widespread and certainly um, even if a specific species might be particular to an area there are very very similar species to that 
in other areas as well. So for me, if you want the, the best bang for your buck in terms of learning some trees to start off with, you want ones that are common, ones that are widespread, and ones that are also useful, clearly. And you mentioned some really good uses there in terms of fire lighting, campcraft, etc covering your basic needs and that and that's a good thing that's a good thing to be able to do so for me i would say um birch so birches in general in in this area it's going to be silver birch there is some downy birch but they look very similar but silver birch whether it's small twigs for fire lighting whether it's bark for fire lighting whether it's roots for binding saponins natural soap in the leaves sap in the spring lots and lots of uses and then there's fungi that are related to birch as well or at least um, have a symbiotic relationship with birch or are associated with birch so things like birch polypore very useful for th everything from stropping your knife it's the classic razor strop fungus through to making medicinal teas from the young ones um, the, in the north not uh, not just the north of england and into scotland but also the north of eurasia um, and the north of north america associated with birch is the horse's hoof fungus one of the best tinder fungi you've also got the likes of the birch boletes very good eating birch boletus and there are several different ones so there's a lot of useful um elements of that tree in, in and of itself and as well as some of the other associated uh, fungi so silver birch and downy birch in northern europe and then as you go to north america there are similar birches so canoe birch for example there are himalayan birches over in eurasia but they all look very very similar and they all have very very similar uses so if you get to know the birches they're very one one of the very most useful to know even though a lot of people consider them weeds pines again so here scots pine very very useful in northern europe so we're kind of like the the westernmost bastion of scots pine it's really a, a boreal forest tree and in the north of the uk so in scotland is the sort of westernmost natural um, habitat for scots pine it's been planted and introduced throughout the uk but as you go um, east from here through scandinavia into russia across right away all the way pretty much to the eastern side of Russia, you're gonna find Scots pine right through that belt. So learn Scots pine. When you jump across to the uh, North America, Jack pine is again, one that takes a similar ecological niche. And so if you can learn to identify pines and differentiate them from spruces, differentiate them, certainly you want to be able to differentiate them from yew, which is a needle tree which is poisonous, Taxus baccata, um, that has single needles coming from, um, from the stem um, it has green greeny yellow stomata on the underside and the needles are arranged spirally but they arrange themselves so they emanate spirally but they arrange themselves in pretty much a plane um, the bark is very distinct get an identification guide make sure you understand how to identify you and separate that out from the other needled species because it is highly toxic once you recognize you then you can start to use some of the other needled species such as pines 
and spruces and hemlocks and uh, uh, firs and um, and larches you can start to use them for various things and to, for me top of the list would be the pines and with one exception all the pines have needles that emanate in pairs so that's a key identification feature and it's a key differentiation feature between it and other things such as you and other single needled trees so as long as you've got needles that emanate in a pair a little bit like two hairs coming out of the same follicle they're together in something called a fascicle um, in this country in the UK it's most likely to be Scots pine if it's a native species but then there are lots of introduced pine species as well but you can make pine needle tea which is rich in vitamin C so you want to be able to differentiate it from you for those reasons so that's a key thing to learn if you want to use it for pine needle tea or any of the other pines for pine needle tea make sure you can eliminate taxus baccata so that you can then say right this is one that's not going to poison me once you can do that you can use it for pine needle tea but there are many other uses as well um, starting at the bottom roots for bindings the bark's been used for food in the past as well the inner bark the inner cambium has been dried and used for a flower substitute um, you can use the uh, the sap um, particularly when it's dried the resin is very good for lighting fires um, the wood itself splits very well you can make very good uh, uh, feather sticks from it and um, there's lots and lots of basic uses and then you can go into more complicated uses again in terms of um, extracting various elements from different species of pine trees um, turpentine all sorts of things but in terms of your basic uses in the forest roots for bindings um, resin needles for vitamin C source and um, the pollen is edible and um, there's lots and lots of uses so get to know the pines be able to differentiate between certainly between pines and yews and then maybe start to learn some of the spruces again northern Europe it's going to be Norway spruce mainly that is the most native one certainly in Scandinavia Norway Sweden into Finland in, into Russia you're going to see Norway spruce a lot You'll see it in the UK a lot planted, but you're also going to see things like Sitka spruces as well. So single needles, but on little woody pegs um, tend to be four sided. Sitka spruce is very spiky on the end. Um, Norway spruce less so. Um, spruce boughs in general are good for things like shelter building, bedding when you're making uh, shelters. Make sure you don't get Sitka spruce though because as I say it's very spiky on the end. You want your Norway spruce. You can make a tea from the needles but um, better is the, um, is the pine needle tea. So I would say um, go for pine needles first and of course as well if you making a tea from spruce needles make definitely make sure it's spruce because they're single needles emanating from a twig um, as are you there are some clear differences if you know the two but make sure you know the differences so spruce willows in general are very very useful as well they tend to live near or actually in water or very damp ground so therefore they are a good indicator of water 
and um, we need water so if you can spot willows in an environment even if there's no surface water you can find water so that's one really good use also they tend to be pretty good for friction fire lighting as long as that you've got a dead dry standing piece so friction fire lighting you can make withies with the shoots you can make baskets you can make fish traps um, you can use the bark for cordage um, lots and lots of uh, great uses of of willow and um, the bark contains salicylic acid which is a natural form of aspirin when it gets into your system so there are some medicinal uses there as well so willows i would say um alders as well there are alders down here i'm down by a stream at the moment again they like to be like to be near water have their toes in the water as it were and again um good indicator of water damp ground um, they also are, have nitrogen fixing roots so you tend to get various species growing near them things like red currants nettles they tend to grow around uh, alders so if you can identify alders from a distance you can also start to identify other resources but in and of itself and um, probably the most directly useful one for you again friction fire lighting dead standing piece of alder pretty good for friction fire lighting um, hazel i'm just thinking there's hazel over there hazel's good for all the camp i'm just looking at your questions all the campcraft stuff things like pegs pot hangers those type of things that you need a, a reasonable amount of strength with not a huge amount of mass um those those are well made out of hazel you can make very good withies from hazel as well so all of your campcraft whether it's constructing camp whether it's constructing washstands whether it's constructing uh, saw horses those lashings made from withies are very strong and then in terms of making pegs pot hangers poles all those sorts of things hazel's very good splitting it down for spatchcocking a chicken or panassing a salmon over the fire all very very well made from hazel and it's non-toxic as well of course for food use as are all of the ones that i've mentioned uh pines uh spruces willows alders um hazel um the uh maples are good as well i'm sat under a sycamore here and um, one of the maple family it is good for carving it's good for makes very good utensils they're light and they're strong dead standing is good for friction fire lighting again you can tap it for sap but you're not going to be able to make maple syrup from sycamore or many of the maples you need specific um, sugar maples um, and red maples from north america um, yeah i would say they're the main one the main uses for you again directly in terms of your questions just looking at the sycamore here friction fire lighting carving they're the main things and a lot of people again consider sycamore a weed it's not a native species in the uk but it is um it is very well established and it's been here hundreds of years so you'll find it a lot but people tend to cut it down so if you want to practice carving it's often a good one that you can get hold of quite easily and then i think um, other ones that you should know um, know how to identify beech and oak because some of the best firewood if you can get dead beech or dead oak get really good embers from it in terms of roasting things so i talked about panassing salmon over the fire i talked about spatch cooking chickens over the fire when you're roasting things over the meat clearly over the fire such as meat or fish you want something that's going to be um going to be non-toxic clearly for, for starters but you want something that's going to give a good steady heat so you'll start a fire you'll build it up you'll get some of that um 
beech or oak on there, dead dry standing stuff, dead branches um, that have fallen typically. Collect those, saw them up, split them down if you need to. Not too much though, um, don't want them too small because they'll just burn away to nothing. But um, if they're really big, you might need to split them down. Sort of wrists, wrist thickness sort of size pieces. Get those on and let them catch a light, burn down to some good coals, some good embers. Then you get that sort of barbecue heat and spread the coals and get some stuff cooking over. Absolutely fantastic. So certainly learn how to identify those. Far too many people try and cook things over the fire with the wrong type of firewood. What you need is something that is going to give you good embers. For boiling, you need flames, so you need small sticks, things like birch, things like spruce, things like pine, small thin sticks, pencil thickness, finger thickness, it's going to give you a lot of flame quite quickly, you're going to boil. Um, simmering, maybe slightly bigger things, and it could be those species, but when it comes to roasting, you really want those dense hardwoods, things like beech and oak. Um, they're the best ones to find, but then things like willow, as long as you keep it in the round, will work well. I've already talked about willow. Again, it has to be dead, dry, standing. Many people try and cook or even just have fires with wet firewood they found on the ground, with stuff that's standing that's not properly dead. It's full of water, it won't work properly, particularly not for cooking, particularly not for roasting. So learn to identify not just the species, but also the condition that you need the firewood to be in. That's a key thing for anybody that wants to do um, a lot of campfire cooking. Um, Hornbeam as well works well for cooking, um, very calorific firewood, but you're not going to find that so much around the UK, only in specific enclaves. So those that I've given you for, um, for fire lighting, uh, for tinder bundles, for campcraft, pot hangers, beds, etc. They'll serve you well and they're common and they're widespread and they're very useful. And the species that you'll learn close to home are similar to species that you'll see further afield. So in terms of the pines, the spruces, the birches, the willows, the alders, um, all of those you will find very similar species right around the northern hemisphere. So learn those first and then you can build out from there. That would be my advice. Quite a long answer, but um, good to get some questions that aren't about kit. <laughs> Thank you. All right, next one dish cleaning in random spots and this is from Mike Mayo and he asks um, how do you clean up your dirty dishes when you're when you backpack into a random spot with no running water close by on a trip lasting more than one night do you bring water or multiple sets of cookware is there a product available to make cleanup easier or possible without water thanks Paul keep up the good work all the best from across the pond Mike well, Mike, I don't know where across the pond you are, um, whether you are, can't tell even from your email address, whether you're in the United States or whether you are in uh, Canada. Um, clearly, some of the more arid parts of the United States, um, particularly, you're going to struggle for water. So that might be what's driving your question. Or maybe some of the higher altitude spots you might hike into when there isn't any snow melt you might struggle to find water there, similarly as you do in, in parts of Europe in the summer. So I, I don't know quite what's driving your question, but um, one thing I would pick up on, uh, you, you said backpack into a random spot. I rarely backpack randomly. Um, you have to plan your route clearly, and 
one of the things you want to be doing when you're planning a route, and I don't mean to be patronizing here, but it's just one of the things you do want to be doing, and this is general advice, is be thinking about where you're going to get water from, thinking about um, how much water you're going to have to carry. Now, if water's scarce, um, I don't really want to be carrying water for anything other than drinking. Um, so I certainly won't be carrying water for washing up. Um, but where you choose to camp then has to be predicated on what you need to be able to do there and you need enough water to to drink first off and you need enough water in the evening you need enough water in the morning and you may well need enough water for a, a bit of a wash you may need water for washing up you don't necessarily need to have a wash every day but you certainly need to be drinking every day particularly if it's a dry area if it's quite arid you need to be drinking plenty so where you're going to get your water from is a key consideration and that might determine where you're going to camp um, because camping in spots where there is no water becomes difficult um, and I've, I've even in the UK in relatively um, wet areas you can be camping high up in the mountains and there is no direct source of water there so you've only got to use what you've got with you and that starts becoming quite difficult until maybe then you drop down the next day you stop you 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 have a good drink of water when you're there you fill up your water bottles and you carry on but i tend to like to try and camp near to where there is a source of water rather than just randomly stop and then go oh where's where's the water and that is that look at a map um, and even if you know look at where there might be water coming down um, streams look at where there might be water pooling try and then plan your route around places that are more likely to have water that would be the first thing that I would be doing and that's a general piece of advice because I don't know the specifics of where you have in mind um, but in terms of cl um, cleaning dishes if that's going to be a problem in terms of sourcing enough water then maybe you need to alter what you're doing with your with your food um, so maybe you need to get some dehydrated uh, food and then just add water to the packet and eat straight out the packet. Then you don't have any washing up to do. You put the, you roll the packet up, you put it, you carry a trash bag with you. Um, and I would recommend carrying a fairly heavy duty trash bag um, because the corners of those um, foil packets on the dehydrated food can be quite sharp once you've ripped them. That can put a hole in a lightweight trash bag. So take like a rubble sack, like a heavier duty um, trash bag, put your trash in, pack it out. And similarly, if you have anything with sharp corners that like tins um, or even parts of tins that you've ripped off or parts of packets that you've ripped off, if they're sharp, they will cut a, a thin plastic bag. So you don't want bits of waste food seeping into the rest of your gear so that might be the solution or you may need to just have something that you eat out of the pot so rather than um, eat, cooking in the pot and then putting it on a plate and getting everything dirty just try and minimize the amount of washing up there is to do in the first place preference would be if water's at a real premium preference would be boil some water put it into a bag let that soak into the food, dehydrated food, eat it out the bag, roll the bag up, put it in the trash. No washing up to do. The pot's not dirty because you've just boiled water. You've wasted no water other than water that you've consumed yourself. If, that's, if it's really critical, that's what I would be doing. Second to that, um, I would be cooking and eating out of the same pot. Um, 
I rarely carry a plate unless I'm doing a canoe trip where we're going to have a range of different foods or if I'm in a static camp for a while if I'm teaching a course I will just take a mug with me I will eat cereal out of that in the mornings I can boil eggs in that if it's a metal mug I can boil eggs in it if I want those for breakfast at the beginning of a trip um, I can uh, uh, drink tea I can drink coffee I can have soup I can eat a meal out of it um, all just out of one thing and there's only ever one thing to, to wash up um, and uh, I may then take a cooking pot sometimes on some trips that's the same thing I boil water in a in a one liter um, it's like a two pint mug and um, I can put that into dehydrated food uh, I can drink out of it I can um, heat water up for any other reason just one pot and then if I don't cook anything in it, I've got no washing up to do. And the only thing I have to clean then is a spoon. So that would be that would be my advice. Think about where you're going to camp, plan your route. You're going to need water anyway, but if it's a real premium, think about generating no washing up in the first place. That would be my advice. Um, and if you are insisting on using pots and cleaning is, a, is an issue, the hardest thing to get off is grease. Um, grease is hard to get off. So minimize the amount of fatty foods you know like uh, sauces that have got lots of oil in them putting oil on things plastic plates in particular hold oil and grease a lot so i tend to avoid those because they have a lot of they hold a lot of flavor they're hard to clean in the bush so I, if i'm going to take a plate i'll take a metal plate they're easier to clean you can sterilize them more easily and um, the MSR uh, stainless steel plates are very good. I tend to take those on trips um, where I'm taking a plate. Otherwise, I just take a mug. But if I really, really have to, just eat out the packet and then there's no washing up. I know that was a bit repetitive, but I was just trying to think about generalizations um, because I don't know exactly the circumstances that you're talking about. All right. I think I'll get another one in before this camera stops again. Best time for carving. And this is from Harry the Hobbit. Um, hi, Harry. Um, hello. What is the best time for carving, especially spoon carving? And do I need to use a special carving knife rather than the Mora to get good results? Cheers. Um, I'm assuming you mean time of year, Harry, as opposed to time of day. Um, but um, I'll answer both just in case. Time of day do it when it's light. Um, I've, I, I, I've seen more accidents or I've heard of more accidents when it's dark. Um, it's harder to see what you're doing. If, even if you're using a good modern head torch, it's harder to see what you're doing. At the end of the day, it tends to be when you're tired as well, you've got less concentration. So avoid carving when it's dark, carve during the day. Time of year, if you're carving with green wood, it doesn't really matter that much, Harry. Um, spring can be a good time. There's lots of things to choose from. It can be nice to be out in the woods at that time of year. I don't tend to do so much outdoor carving in the winter just because your hands are cold. It's not so pleasant sitting around, even around the campfire. So I would say spring, summer, into the autumn, lots of easy to identify deciduous woods to, to choose. And again, in the summer, um, they're easier to identify than in the winter. It's nice to be out. I would say that's the time of year that would be best. Um, and you've got long days to do your carving as well. Um, do you need a special carving knife? No, you don't. Um, the Mora wood carving knives are nice. Um, they are nice for carving, but 
a Mora Clipper or a Mora Strong, uh, the, the, the strong version of the clipper. They're great for carving, they're great general purpose knives. You can do all of your basic camp craft, you can do carving with them. Um, that's what we use on our, on our courses. Um, so elementary, essentials, um, I, I give those to people. They use them for all the tasks, whether it's making bow drill sets, making uh, netting needles on our intermediate, or making um, make it, carving spoons um, on, the, on the elementary course. Pretty much anything that I ask anybody to do on any of the courses that involve small, um, you know, small carving. Once you get onto the larger carving jobs, an axe is hand, handy. But all of the small carving jobs, you don't need a specialist carving knife. It's nice to have. You can do some things more efficiently with them, but a general purpose Mora clipper will be absolutely fine. So. Um, I would just advise you to go out and start learning to carve. The only thing you are going to need if you're doing spoon carving or bowl carving or carving cups is you will need a specialist spoon knife, um, at least a small spoon knife so that you can carve the bowls out of the spoons easily. Um, you can start to carve larger implements out with those, um, so you know, larger spoons, etc. But then you might also want to get a medium-sized spoon knife for some of the larger objects, just to get the right curves and to remove a reasonable amount of material in, in one in one spot. So it's up to you. Small spoon knife and your normal mora, you'll be absolutely fine. Hopefully that helps, Harry. Send me some photos of your carving once you get going with it. Okay, how not to get wet under a tarp. Those of you that follow my YouTube channel will uh, probably smile at this question. Um, to be fair to Jeff, this um, question came before I made that video. And that video um, about how to stay dry under a tarp um, wasn't made in reaction to this question from Jeff. I think this, this question from Jeff is a, is a sensible question. Um, the, the video on YouTube was made in, as a reaction to some dumb comments that I got about my lightening the load videos where I was looking at lightweight tarps amongst other things and also the, the video that was linked from that about how to set up the lightest of those setups. I got some fairly dumb comments like that'll be all right until it rains. Um, and yeah, okay, fair enough. Some people are skeptical about whether or not tarps will keep you dry in certain weather conditions. And I think we should address that, um, particularly in the context of Jeff's question here, which is a sensible one. Um, and, and I'll link to those other videos in the show notes. So I'll link to the, the recent YouTube video about um, tarps keeping you dry, which I filmed in very heavy rain under my tarp. Um, the lightening the load video about um, different tarps and sleeping setups to reduce the weight of packs and the setup of the lightest one of those um, setups. I will, I will link all of those in the show notes at paulkirtley.co.uk. Find episode 35 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Those links will be in the show notes there on my blog. So Jeff's question is, I noticed you like to sleep on the ground under a tarp without the benefit of a tent. How do you prevent rainfall from leaking under the tarp and getting your bedding wet? And that's a genuine concern. And actually, if you don't do it right, that may well happen. You may well get wet under a tarp if you don't do it right. And I think that's the key thing. Um, you have to do things right. 
Um, you can't just buy kit and, um, and expect it to do everything for you without engaging your brain. And again, this is not aimed, this is not aimed at you, Jeff, just to be clear. It's some of the comments that I've had on YouTube about tarps. Yeah, okay, if you, if you put a tarp up high on the edge of a woodland with the prevailing wind coming from that side, yes, the rain is gonna blow under the, 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 the windward side of the tarp. Of course, that's just physics, but it's about being intelligent with where you put your tarp. So I have spent hundreds, probably into the thousands of nights out under a tarp. I live and work outdoors many months of the year, every single year, and I have done for a decade full-time and before that part-time in terms of working and I've hiked and camped since I was in my late teens and I'm now 43. So I am talking from 25 years of experience of hiking, camping, camping in the mountains, camping in the woods, camping in the UK, camping in Scandinavia, camping in mainland Europe, camping in Africa, camping in North America, okay? I am talking from that perspective when I talk. I am not sitting here <laughs> for the YouTube commenters. I am not sitting here um, speaking from the perspective of theory. Okay, I'm speaking from the perspective of experience. If you put a tarp up high on the edge of a piece of woodland when it's windy, yes, you will get water underneath it. If you are under a very small tarp and it rains very, very heavily, that water can bounce off the ground and splash under your tarp. Yes, those things can happen. But I'll give you a recent example, or an example from earlier this year. We were between courses that we ran, um, and actually one of those courses was the episode where we did the, the, the live Ask Paul Kirtley with a live audience asking the questions. That was the two-day course that we did um, back in, um, April, I believe it was, if I remember rightly, end of March, beginning of April. And between that course and another course, we had some really, really bad weather. And um, it was fairly unpleasant when we recorded that episode. Um, you remember us talking about that. And if not, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Um, it was wet and it was windy, but it had been um, a lot wetter and a lot windier before that. And it was very um, wet and very windy um, after that course, we stayed in the woods after that course and a storm came through and it was horrendous. We had trees coming down in the woods. Um, it, there were areas of the woods that were flooded, but I did not get wet under my tarp. And the reason I didn't get wet under my tarp was because I was intelligent about where I put it. Yeah, aside from making sure that I'm not under a tree that's liable to blow down or parts of it to blow off, that's the primary concern you're then intelligent about where you put it. Where is the weather coming from? Make sure that you're not on the edge of the woods on the side where the weather's coming from, or even on the edge of a clearing in the woods in the direction that the weather's coming from. Get into the woods. On that course, the two-day course, um, we didn't have the students put their tarps up where they normally put their tarps up on the two-day course to camp because of the way that the strong wind was coming into the edge of the woodland, we had them camp just, it was a very slight rise, just on the other side of this slight rise, maybe about 
100 yards at most from where they normally camp, the difference in how windy it was between where we'd normally have students camp on that course and where we put them because of the prevailing uh, wind that, that weekend made a huge difference to their comfort, both in terms of temperature and in terms of protection from the rain. So being intelligent about where you put it is the first thing in terms of macro positioning. Where is the weather coming from? Where is the best side um, of these woods? Where's the best side of this hill? Where am I going to get some shelter? Even one side of a tree stump or another will make a difference to how much wind and rain will get anywhere near you. The next thing you need to do, clearly if you put your tarp up and you're in a localised dip, what can happen is the rain comes down off your tarp, hits the ground and then flows underneath your tarp and you end up lying in a pool of water. You don't want to be doing that either. So look for local minima, look for local low spots and avoid sleeping in them, avoid spanning your tarp between them. Um, that is the primary thing to do there. Think about where water is going to go when it flows off your tarp. Think about where water is going to go on the ground generally if it rains heavily. Um, and as I say, I spend lots and lots, you know, it varies, but I spend between hundreds, between scores and hundreds of nights out in a year under a tarp, depending on, you know, what I'm doing, what year it is, um, some years I've spent more time out than others, some years I've spent more time in tents, some years I've spent more times on trips in tents and less time in tarps. It depends, but I've spent a lot of time out under tarps and only on a handful of occasions have I had any water run under my tarp because I always do my utmost to make sure I think about it and I position my tarp correctly. Doesn't need to spend, don't need to spend a long time, this is not an involved process. Yeah. Macro, where do I put it? Micro, where do I put it? And then put it up. Doesn't need to take a long time. A good tip from a friend of mine when you're looking for somewhere to put your tarp up is take your rucksack off. When you come to the general area you're going to put your tarp up, put your, take your rucksack off. Because if you're at the end of a long day's hike and you're tired, and this, this rings true, it's a piece of advice um, I heard him giving somebody recently and it's not one that I, was at the forefront of my mind, but it is now, it's a good one. It's something I do, but it wasn't something that was sort of in my conscious mind as a piece of advice. Put your rucksack down and then walk around finding a good spot because if you've got a big heavy load on that you've had on your back all day, the, th the thing you want to do is put it down and so you'll put it down and if that means that's where you're going to put your camp up it might not be op optimal so put your rucksack down make sure you can remember where it is of course and then find that localized spot that you're going to put your camp put your tarp up it doesn't need to take a long time five minutes at most to choose a good spot all right that's that's that thing and then the third thing is then use a bivy bag use a waterproof cover for your sleeping bag and your sleeping mat goes inside that and your sleeping bag goes inside that. That gives um, multiple levels of protection for your sleeping gear. It means that it's not going to get wet and we'll come back to that in a second. It means it gets dirty less quickly um, which is important because dirty sleeping bags don't work as well in terms of keeping you warm and um, it also gives another layer of protection in terms of thermal efficiency, stops 
um, drafts, just in the, in the same way as you putting a, a waterproof jacket over you stops the wind getting into your thermal layers, putting a waterproof cover over your sleeping bag stops the wind taking the warm air away from your sleeping bag. It also traps another layer of air between the sleeping bag and the bivy bag, so it makes it more thermally efficient, it keeps it dry, it keeps it clean. In terms of keeping it dry, you can, if it's a really good bivy bag, it will stop the rain getting in. You can even have your feet sticking out the bottom of the tarp. If it's a small tarp, pop the bottom of the bivy bag out the bottom of the tarp a little bit. That means you can get your rucksack well in above you. That stops drafts coming down your neck. You can put your dry clothes on top of your sleeping bag, on top of your rucksack rather, above where you're sleeping. You're nicely cocooned in, you're nicely um, in, encapsulated in your sleeping bag, in your bivy bag. Everything's together as well. Remember I said put your sleeping mat inside as well then you're not going to slide off it. The exception to that I would say now is with the advent of those thick X-bed mats and similar, they can be quite hard to get inside a bivy bag and a sleeping bag. That's, that's, the, that's the flip side of those. That said, if I was doing a lightweight tarp trip, I wouldn't have one of those. I'd use those more for sleeping on rock on canoe trips, and I use them for winter trips sometimes and um, when I'm in a heated tent. I generally use a, a Thermarest, either a full length one or a three quarter length one, and a bivy bag and a sleeping bag um, if I'm sleeping on the ground and I'm comfortable. And I've done that for years and I have never got my sleeping bag wet sleeping on the ground unless I've been sleeping out just in a bivy bag that isn't a completely um, like a mini tent, like a double hoop bivy, a bivy bag. So sometimes you want to sleep out under the stars. I remember one evening I slept out, sleeping mat inside the, inside the bivy bag, sleeping bag inside. It had um, pretty heavy rainstorms overnight. Um, and even though um, I, I fastened things quite up, water is going to get in. Um, what I find in those situations works best is if you don't have a, a bag um, that will zip over completely and have a little hoop in it, like some of them do, um, I don't tend to use those anymore. If, I'm, if I want a lightweight tent, I take a lightweight tent these days because lightweight tents are so much lighter. Um, but if I am sleeping out in a bivy bag, only a bivy bag, um, no tarp over me and it starts to rain, most bivy bags have got some sort of hood that will cowl up around your face. The best thing to do with those is not try and put them up over your face because water will just come in. The best thing to do is lie on your front with the hood over your head so it protects and it stops the rain coming in. Um, that will work well. And people are going to ask about biting insects and things. Yeah, if you've got biting insects, you're not going to be sleeping out like that in the first place. If you know there's going to be midges or mosquitoes or black flies or anything else, you take a shelter that's appropriate. <clears throat> so hopefully that helps. Choose the right spot, macro sense within the woods, choose the right spot, micro in terms of localized low spots, make sure you put your tarp up in a sensible spot, make sure that your sleeping bag is inside a bivy bag and that bivy bag is waterproofed and you will have no problem as I say hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nights spent sleeping out like that. I really enjoy it. I like sleeping outside. I know some people prefer hammocks. That's fine. Um, I don't personally. I quite like sleeping on a flat piece of ground. I find it better for my back. I find it's better for my kidneys. I find I sleep better that way. That works for me. 
I don't get wet, I don't get water coming in the side, I don't get water flowing underneath. It's just about intelligent choice of where you put the tarp in the first place. Okay, thanks for the question there, Jeff. Hopefully that helps. There's a lot of other stuff around that. It wasn't aimed at you, um, but there's been a lot of comments on YouTube. Hopefully that puts that uh, to bed, pun intended. <laughs> um, now, um, but do check out those other videos in terms of um, me being under a tarp in the rain, um, how, how to lighten the load if you are taking tarps and sleeping bags, as well as that setup of that really lightweight um, setup. And I'm using that quite a lot at the moment. I've been using that setup a lot this summer. Um, even I made that video at the beginning of last year, uh, beginning of 2015, I've been using that lightweight tarp and lightweight bivy bag setup a lot more this summer. And I'm really enjoying how little space and weight it's taken up in my sleeping bag. Okay, good. Next question is about saws. I think this will be quite a quick one. So this is from Plyla McManus. And his question is, lightweight saws. What lightweight saw do you recommend for carrying on a two to three day hike to be used to process firewood and why? I have purchased two already and both tend to bind and drag rather than rather badly once the blade sinks deeply into the wood presumably because they are inexpensive versions with no tooth set or blade taper. It seems that the consensus is the Barco Laplander, but I can't tell from the company's documentation whether this saw blade design is significantly different from what I already have. And prior to paying for a third saw experiment, I thought I would ask specifically, what saw do you recommend and what features of that saw minimizes binding? Um, yeah, well, that's quite easy. Um, I do recommend the, the Barco Laplander. I recommend it for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it is, um, it is designed as a pruning saw, first off. And so it's designed for cutting relatively small diameter green wood in particular. Um, that makes it designed for not binding while cutting those things. Um, it's ergonomically well designed. If you're cutting branches off, it's ergonomically well designed for doing that. Um, it locks open, which is a good safety feature on any folding uh, bladed tool. It also locks closed, which I think is very useful because it means that it's never going to be open when you come to take it out your pocket, take it out your pack. Um, it means it's safe. It also means that it's not going to open in your pack and damage other equipment. Um, so I think that's a useful feature for it to have as well. In terms of the blade specifically, um, it has a it rakes a cut that is wider than the diameter of the main body of the blade and therefore it doesn't bind um, most pruning saws um, cut on the pull rather than the push if you look at a laplander the teeth are, uh, are arranged slightly backwards just slightly and it will cut on the pull a lot of people um, find them inefficient until they realize that because they're trying to cut on the push and they're not doing much on the on the pull on the way backwards actually most of the cut is on the back um, that's because um, there is no inherent um, external rigidity applied to the to the saw there's no frame there's no spine to it it's just the material of the blade and what that means is if it was cutting on the push it would tend to kink and bend and bind and i i don't know which ones you've bought but that could be another reason why they're binding but if they're bending on the push and and kinking in the cut that's going to not help matters so 
a, a saw that cuts on the pull, one that has the teeth arranged alternately um, wider than the, the, the diameter of the main body of the, of the blade means that it's going to rake out a cut that is bigger and it's not going to bind. Um, and teeth that are the right sort of teeth for cutting all the types of wood that you're trying to cut. Um, so you're talking about cutting firewood, um, but also these saws are designed to cut green wood as well. And green wood tends to bind more because it's wet, it has sap, it has resin than the drier seasoned wood. So buy a good quality pruning saw. Um, Barco Laplander is my top choice. The silky saws are also pretty good, but they tend to be more brittle in my experience. I've seen a few of them break um, when they've been bent slightly, whereas the Laplanders, um, the steel tends to be a lot more um, uh, malleable and a lot more forgiving. You can bend the tip and straighten it out again with a um, with a with a leatherman for example on a on a on an expedition whereas i've seen the tips break off silkies and that for me is a is a key difference that um makes me want to carry a laplander particularly into wild country hopefully that helps next question and i think it's the last question this is the last question for episode 35 this is from David Guy. Hi, David. Nice to hear from you. Um, haven't heard from you for a while. Um, David asks, um, I hope you're well and getting out. Yes, I certainly am. Um, I'm really enjoying the articles and videos. My question is, what tools and equipment do you use to maintain your knife and axe at home? Many thanks, David. Okay. Um, so, in the field, I tend to just try and take minimal equipment. I tend to take um, at least a, a small pocket s uh, stone. Uh, typically, I've taken a, a, a DC-4, a Falkneven DC-4 in my pocket. I've got one in my pocket now. It's one I've had for years. And that is something that I just, when I have a knife, I take that with me. And if I'm carrying an ax, I tend to carry um, uh, an axe stone as well, one of the Gransfors axe stones. And that is what I use in the field. And I can, of course, use those at home. Um, for those field questions, I did an article on those a while ago. I'll link to that in the show notes. If people are interested in options for carrying with you without carrying too much weight to maintain all your gear, that stuff that I talked about, and there are some other good suggestions in the comments on the article, I would recommend people go over there. I'll link it in the show notes. So yes you can use those at home and as a, as a basis if you wanted just to get something to look after everything all the time that's all you really need but if you want to give your gear a really nice sort of bench treatment at home and bring everything up to being really spick and span there's a few other things that you might want now generally i use my leather belt for stropping in the field both my knife and my axe you might want to make yourself um, some sort of paddle strop at home with a, a piece it's basically a piece of board with a piece of leather on glued onto it and then you could use some stropping compound you could just use some metal polish for that but you can also um, buy specific uh, stropping compounds for getting a really nice fine uh, almost mirror finish on edges often and that might be the only extra thing that you need um, and I would certainly recommend getting one of those or making one of those yourself um, in terms of getting 
posh with your sharpening at home for your knife if you want to. You can get a set of water stones, so some Japanese water stones. Get some uh, coarse grade ones for if you really need to take the knife back to um, its shape and need to get metal off quite quickly. I'd recommend at least an 800. You might want to go coarser than that still, but at, at least an 800. And then above that, a 1200 and a 6000 will serve you well. So 8000, uh, sorry, 800, um, 1200, 6000. And as a minimum, I'd say get a, a 1200 6,000. You can get 1,000, 6,000 combination stones and if you're on a budget that's what I would get. So rather than get the 800 and the 1,200 and the 6,000 separately, just get the 1,000, 6,000 combo stone. Get a little rubber um, housing for it. You can get one that screws on or you can get ones that they just sit in. That stops it slipping around on, a, on the bench um, and that's, that's, that's what you need. If you want to go really posh, get yourself an 8000. You're also going to need an, a Nagura stone um, which is uh, something that helps create a slurry on top of the stone for a 6000 and an 8000 I'd recommend that. Um, that's going to cost you a reasonable amount of money if you're in the UK which you are David have a look at Axminster Tools their website um, Axminster Power Tools or Axminster Tools if you search on that on Google or another search engine of your choice you should find their website How, search on water stones in there and you can see what's available so get the bench size stones 800 1200 6000 if you want to go really posh get an 8000 um, make yourself a paddle strop and use those in terms of what i would use on my axe at home i don't really do anything else with my axe at home than what i do in the field i use the axe stone Gransfors axe stone works really really well but if you say started with the um, with the combination water stone, what you can do down the line if you end up getting individual water stones is you take your combination water stone, saw that in half, and that makes a really good axe stone as well. Um, there's one of those in the article that I talked about for things that you can take in the field with you as well, because that's another option for an axe stone in the field as well. Take a combination water stone, saw it in half, and carry that with you um, and you can sharpen your knives and your, your axe with that as well. So those would be my recommendations. Good water stones, paddle strop, stropping paste, and then you know make sure that you oil things afterwards so that they're protected, particularly if they're not stainless steel. So you can put camellia oil or similar light oils that are designed for the purpose on uh, or traditionally used for the purpose on your knives. I just use some three-in-one or gun oil on my axes just to protect them. Um, again, there's an article on three basic things you need to do to keep your axe in good shape. Um, I'll, I'll, pu I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That wasn't that long ago on my blog, but I'll link to that just in case you haven't seen that. And that's everything that you need to know basically about looking after your stuff at home. And I think that brings us to the end. The other thing I would say is with a water stone as with an oil stone you need to get the angle right. Most people are going to be using a Scandi grind knife whether it's a Mora or a handmade knife you're going to be using a Scandi grind flat grind. Make sure you get the angle of your um, knife correct with respect to the 
stone and I've got some resources uh, that show you how to do that I've got a video that shows you how to do that and I've got a general bench stone um, sharpening article as well um, it's it's using an oil stone but the principle is exactly the same as with a water stone so I will link to those on the show notes as well so a bumper set of um, different resources linked in the show notes uh, this time um, if you're listening to this as a podcast please go over there and check those out i know it takes a, it's an extra step and um, go over to paulkirtley.co.uk but then it, it just allows me to keep everything in one place because this goes out as a podcast on different platforms it goes out as a video um, on youtube it goes out as a video on my blog as well and if i have to put those links in just one place that's a lot easier for me um, because i don't have unlimited time to do this um, so thank you for your attention the other thing i would ask you to do is uh, if you could if you enjoy these shows then please could you share a link to uh, the video or the page on my blog or a page on itunes or somewhere where people can pick up and subscribe to this um so go to your favorite group on facebook or google plus or wherever you hang out with other people and if you would just share this that will help me out no end because other people that are like-minded are going to see these shows and they're going to benefit from them as well they're going to be able to subscribe to them that helps me because i get more questions that then helps you because you get a wider range of questions answered so that's all all good for me it's all good for you i appreciate your help i appreciate your attention and i will look forward to answering more questions in episode 36 of ask paul kirtley before too long take care